0: Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a covenant renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording.
1: The call to confession this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 21, verse 30. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. The Lord is God. He is the creator, the designer, the master builder, and the originator of all things. Wisdom is defined by him. Understanding is derived from him. And counsel is supposed to direct things in a way that is effective or in a way that works, and naturally it always points to Him. So, not only is there no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord, but there can be no wisdom or understanding or counsel against Him. It goes against reason. Gamaliel had good advice to the Sanhedrin, it was wisdom for it recognized the truth of this proverb. The one thing you can be sure you don't want to do is to fight against the Lord. God always comes out on top. And because Jesus is God, He always comes out on top. He's the chief cornerstone that will grind to powder anything that stands in His way. And moreover, all wise, understanding, and well-counseled men will build their lives upon this cornerstone. And this reminds us to confess our sins because we are foolish. We sometimes seek to get our way without submitting to our Lord's way. We sometimes go against His wisdom, understanding, and counsel. Sometimes we do it because we're lazy. Sometimes because we're headstrong. Always because we're sinners that said god is faithful and just and he is merciful and kind and he gave us a redeemer and a savior and a mediator which means that even though we sin he has provided a means for our sanctification we confess our sins and he will forgive us for jesus sake because he loves us so if you're willing and able please kneel as we confess our sins been in Ephesus for several weeks now, like four or five now. In 1 Corinthians 16, um, which Paul wrote while he was in Ephesus, he says this, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. So, So Paul has described the nature of his ministry in Ephesus for us in the book of 1st Corinthians. He has a great and effective door open to him. And there are many adversaries. And this is exactly what we've seen as we've seen Paul in Ephesus. He's been there almost three years. And he's been through some powerful and effective ministry. We saw first that he taught daily in the synagogue for three months. And then... When the Jews' hearts were hardened, he left there, and he spent almost two years in the school of Tyrannus, teaching daily. Last week we saw how he performed miracles and exorcisms. Even even the sweat rags that he used would be used to perform powerful miracles. And then it was tried to, the uh, the posers, the the false exorcists, the Jewish itinerant exorcists, tried to copy him, to use his name and Jesus' name. And we saw that God used uh, that and vindicated Paul's ministry because he uh, shamed the sons of Sceva and sent them out beaten and naked. And then we saw how that ministry resulted in in very effective and pragmatic terms in, in that the, the, the Ephesian, Ephesians who had been into the, the practice of magic, the occult, Came together and they burned fifty thousand pieces of silver's worth of magic books, and that's and then our text ended this way last week. Um, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So we have a great and effective door that has been opened to him in Ephesus, and we have many adversaries. We have the Jews. We have the uh, today we're going to see the 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 Demetrius and the silversmiths opposing. Paul, there are many adversaries in Ephesus, and yet God performs his will. The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And we have uh, that summary of his ministry there in Ephesus. And our passage today conveys a famous and remarkable event that occurred just before Paul leaves town. And this is the riot in Ephesus, and that's what our text today is, is going to be about. But first, our text gives us a little narrative about his intended travels. So we'll start in chapter 19, verse 21, where we left off. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So Paul s- starts off with this little interim. Uh, just Luke gives us his thoughts. What's what's going on in Paul's head here? Um, and we see that Paul stays in Asia. So he's been in Ephesus. He's staying in Ephesus, and so. Why, why is this here? Why, why, why is it, I mean we've, got, we've been talking Ephesus, Ephesus, Ephesus. Now we've got this little thing, well, Paul's planning on' going to Jerusalem to Rome and he's, he wants to go through Macedonia, but he's going to stay in Asia and then he goes, then the, then the text goes and jumps right back into what happens in Ephesus, where Paul encounters this, this uh, there's a great commotion about the way. So, so why does St. Luke do this here? Well, The reason that Paul indicates his next move before the riot, the reason that Luke has interrupted the flow of, the story of what's going on in Ephesus and Asia Minor, and then this little blurb about Paul's desire to go to Jerusalem and Rome, is because this is an introduction to the last section of the book. And how do I get that? Where is that coming from? Well, the book of, of Acts is broken up into, into seven, seven different sections. And each one of them is marked by a brief summary of the nature of the ministry that goes on prior to it. And so it's also divided up geographically, where it's always moving out and moving on. So the first section is the, the, the spirit coming to the church in Jerusalem. And then the second section is the effect of the church in Jerusalem spreading the gospel to the Sanhedrin. And then the next section is when the gospel goes out to Judea and Samaria. So seven times in the book, Luke gives us a short progress report a summary of how the church is doing at the end of a period of a certain ministry in a particular region. And the overarching scheme is given right at the beginning of the book in chapter 1, when Jesus tells the disciples before he goes up into heaven, the last thing he tells them is, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we see this progression where it starts in the first half of the book is all of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And finally it breaks out from there and it goes out to Judea and Samaria and then it goes up into Antioch and then it goes into Asia Minor and, and then it goes into, into Europe. And so the last section that we just covered is, is Paul's second missionary journey where the gospel goes into Greece and Ephesus which is, this, this is, this is the, the eastern part of the, the Roman Empire but it's further west than it's gone before. So so now we've got the the, the closing of a section, and and then Paul introduces the next section with exactly what this section is about. Now, the story that's starting right now is is the story of how Paul ends up in Rome. And this last section of the book is how, where does the the book end? Paul's in Rome, ministering in Rome, under house arrest, but ministering in Rome. And unless we get that this is the progression of the book, and this is intended, this is where it's supposed to go, it feels very like, whoa, what next? What's going on? But no, this is the end point. This is the goal, is to get the gospel out into the world. And from Rome being the center of the known world, the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. So here we have the introduction to the last section of the book of Acts. And one thing that's also good to to, to take note of here is that we see Paul's incessant, faithful concern for the believers he's left behind him. His desire to travel back through Macedonia, back through uh, Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, back to. Uh, he wants to go back through there. He purposed in the Spirit when he passed through Macedonia and Achaia. That's that's Corinth. That's well. He wants to go back through northern and, and central Greece. Because that's where he ministered to. And he, he, he planted churches there. He loved the people there. He wrote the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians to them. He wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians to them. He loves them. He wants to desire. He desires their best interests. And so it's important to keep that in mind. That even as Paul's vision and his, 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 his vision casting, he's looking to go out. He needs to go back to Jerusalem and then to Rome. He's, he's got a mission. He's got a big master plan. But he doesn't forget all the work he's done along the way. And he keeps watering and he keeps planting and he keeps encouraging and strengthening the churches. So this explains now why why Paul is still in Asia for this next episode. Because he sent Timothy and Erastus on to Macedonia and he stays in Asia for a time. And this is what happens. And about that time, verses 23 to 27 of Acts chapter 19. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So here we meet Demetrius and the silversmiths. And, no, they are not a doo band. Demetrius and the silversmiths. The first thing we learn about them is their trade. They were silversmiths. They made small silver shrines for the goddess Diana. That's how they, 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 they made their money. And their trade was directly related to the cult of Diana, to the cult of Artemis. Artemis is a Greek name; Diana is a Roman name. That's the, so the Romans, as they would overcome new places, they would assimilate their gods, and they would just look at the most similar god that they have to the one that's there, and that's what they, that are what they just assume that. That, that god just. Remember, we talked last week about how false religion is syncretistic. It wants, it just adds to it. That's okay. We can we can throw that in the mix. So it was Diana for the Romans, or in Latin it was Diana, in Greek it was Artemis. Now we should take a moment to talk about the landscape here. So Ephesus, I've told you about this Ephesus before, it was a large port city on the western shores of Asia Minor, modern Turkey. It was the capital of the region, it was renowned for its temple to Artemis. This temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. It had 127 pillars. Each of them was 60 feet high. Many of them were covered in gold leaf and statuary from the greatest artists of the period. Its foundation was about one and a half times the size of of an American football field. The construction was of polished marble, and it took over 200 years to construct this temple. And at the center of the temple, there was a statue of the deity who was known as Artemis to the Greeks and Diana to the Romans, so she was different than the Diana of Greek myth. I don't know if you're very up on your mythology, but the Greek Greek Diana was one of the Olympians. She she was a huntress. but she was the most similar god to this Artemis of of Asia Minor. Um, this this Artemis was a mother goddess. She was a Mother Earth figure. Uh, she was similar to the Astros of the Old Testament, the Canaanite worship of the Astros. She was a many-breasted fertility goddess. She was the god of nature. She she was always depicted with uh, a chariot drawn by lions because nature was in subjection to her. her. Her worship truly was ancient and worldwide, and her wealth was immense. In fact, this temple was essentially the central bank of Asia Minor. Lots of money here. Demetrius wasn't kidding when he said... You know how great our prosperity is by this trade. All in all, this was an an intensely and an extremely impressive structure. But the Temple of Diana was not located downtown Ephesus. Actually, it wasn't located in town at all. There was a small trail that you went north out of town and went around to get over to the holy place where the temple was. In town, there was a there, in town at the center of town there was a massive stadium. It, it was called a theater in our text, a massive stadium or theater that seated assemblies for and, and they held festivals and public entertainment there. They had they had court cases there. This, this stadium sat over twenty five thousand people. The estimates are somewhere between 25 and 56,000 people could see it in this stadium. It's a giant structure. There's a broad marble road that ran right through the middle of Ephesus. It, it, it ended at this at the stadium and it started at the harbor. That was downtown Ephesus. And on either side of this this, uh, marble road, there were shops, and it was full of life. And this is where the the markets were, and and this is where uh, those who were connected to the worship of Diana and Artemis, the silversmiths, would be selling their wares along this way, because this is where the travelers would come into town. they, they, They would be leaving town here. So they'd be selling amulets and these little silver shrines of, of, the, of the temple or of the statue to these traveling worshipers. And it was here at, at, in downtown that Demetrius and the silversmith guild or the, their union gathered to incite a riot. They aren't abashed about the fact that they make a great profit by the worship of the goddess. Demetrius starts out there and it's like, Look, guys, this is where we get our money from. And it's in danger. Paul has endangered our profit. They're motivated by greed, but that doesn't stop them from claiming higher moral ground or religious zealotry in order to get a broader following. It's not just, hey, hey. Our bank accounts is taking a hit. No, 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 it's uh, the temple of Diana is going to fall into disrepute. Our God will be taken down. Now, the fact that these craftsmen recognize Paul as a threat to their livelihoods is a tremendous witness to the effectiveness of Paul's ministry in Ephesus and in Asia. Remember, Paul himself says, a great and effective door has been opened to me in Asia. Well, it must have been good, as we saw last week. When, when, remember, the the fear that fell upon all the Greeks and the Jews when they saw the sons of Stephen shamed. Remember the power of the miracles and the exorcisms that Paul did. And and remember how the the believers who followed Christianity and believed the gospel burned what we said It's about $7.5 million worth of goods because they were designated goods for the worship of false gods, for their magic books and the paraphernalia. So Demetrius recognizes the danger to his income that the gospel proposes, the threat that it brings. And he accuses Paul of being dangerous to the worship of Diana and to the income, the profit of the silversmiths. And what we see next is that Demetrius is very successful in creating a disturbance. Verses 28 to 34. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into, rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude. The Jews put him in forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. When the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image, of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, Since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here, who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. Sorry, I think I read a little too far. But that's okay, because we'll get there too. So um, what we see now is this mob, the mob, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And what we see is their wrath, they're filled with wrath, and they have a slogan, great Diana of the Ephesians, and they're confused. What? Okay, so Diana's great. Why are we here? Demetrius has worked them up. And yet in this mob, we see the work of God. The Holy Spirit saves Paul. He saves Paul first by making sure he wasn't available when they first went out to look for him. They come to find Paul while well, he's not there. So they grab Gaius and Aristarchus. Then, um, then Paul wants to go out and he, he sees the crowd. He's like, hey, it's time to preach. Let's go. And uh, you no, know, the disciples hold him back. Say, hold on, Paul. Hold on, Paul. And then God in his wisdom has the officials of Asia, the, the, the Asiarchs, they were Paul's friends. They were they were they were they were civil leaders in Asia. And they they reach out to Paul. And they said, Paul, don't go out there. Paul submits, he, he accepts God's instruction not to go out to this crowd. These people were worked up. This was the dangerous time for Paul. But Paul had friends among the officials in Asia. These people cared about him. They didn't want him to be injured. They didn't want him to be sacrificed. They didn't want him to be martyred. They knew that the gospel was not a threat to government per se. We know that the gospel is not a threat to government per se. It's not government in itself that is in danger from the gospel. No, God establishes government. God gives authority. And authority is not held for for no purpose. It's God expects those in authority to exercise their authority with wisdom. And with understanding and with counsel. So God gives authority and Christians recognize it. So Demetrius incites a riot by misrepresenting the kind of threat that Paul was to the worship of Diana. Because out of his greed, he was angry. So the Jews put forth Alexander. Who's Alexander? Well, he was a Jew in Ephesus. And we've we've, we've encountered the Jews in Ephesus before. They attacked Paul, but God delivered him from them. So, So Paul... First, they wanted to hear the gospel, then their hearts were hardened, so Paul sets up camp in the school of Tyrannus. Well, from here on out, this is what happens every time we run into the Jews in the book of Acts, is after they see the gospel take root and have effect in their neighborhood, they get jealous and they start opposing the gospel in the way. So... The Jews are very concerned that this mob might be directed toward them, so they want to make clear that they are not the ones causing the problem. So they put forward Alexander. They say, Alexander, you're a good orator. You get out there. You explain that this is not us. It's them. The mob was confused, but they weren't that confused. They understood that the Jews didn't want to worship Diana any more than the Christians did. They're not, uh, this mob, they're not much different than the Sanhedrin ones with Stephen either. Remember when Stephen was preaching the truth to the Sanhedrin? Finally they got angry and they stopped up their ears and started throwing rocks. We can't argue against this so we're going we're gonna to throw rocks. So, so this crowd, like similarly, they, they drown out Alexander with this chant for two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Over and over and over again. And that's when we're introduced to the city clerk. And here's a great and wise man. Uh, the city clerk, he quieted the crowd. He said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? So now we're introduced to a pretty smart guy. This this clerk here, this guy's got it. He's 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 got it together. He was the city clerk. The, text, the, the Greek word is grammateus. He was... He's like a glorified scribe, but basically he's the one who answers to the Romans for how things are going in Ephesus. So he has some pretty good motivation to act as he does, because riot was intolerable to the the Romans. So first we see that uh, he does what Alexander could not do. He quiets the crowd. He appeased the crowd. Who doesn't know? Who doesn't know? Who doesn't know that the the image which fell down from Zeus of of Ephesus, and and, and this image that fell down from Zeus, there's conjecture. Maybe it was a a meteorite that fell down that that looked like the goddess, and they set it up, and that was the statue in in the temple. Maybe it was a statue that was just so good that people thought it must be the work of the gods. We're not sure. Um, So it fell down from Zeus. And he says, well, who doesn't know that this image fell down? Well, apparently we don't know that this this image that fell down from Zeus. But they didn't know that. It was was a, a contemporary, everybody gets this. Everybody knows. The image which fell down from Zeus is in the temple of Diana. And all men worship her from all over the world. So he's saying... Slow down, calm down. You don't have to worry about this. Everybody knows. Greatest Diana of the Ephesians. Of course she's great. And next he makes some rational suggestions. He gets their ear, and then he makes he says, "Okay, follow with me here a second. Calm down. There's nothing pressing here. Since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly." Verse thirty-six. Do nothing rashly. Next he says, this is not riot worthy. Verse 37, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. This is not riot worthy. They haven't stolen your money. And they haven't blasphemed Diana. Now there's some very key information here. This is... a a witness to the nature of Paul's evangelism in Ephesus. Paul doesn't go around poking his finger in people's eyes. He doesn't go around mocking their God. And there is a place, there's a time for that. Sometimes Elijah does that, just before he kills the prophets of Baal. But not, not in Ephesus. Paul's not going about doing it. What Paul is doing. Is bringing the gospel. He's pointing at the truth. There's more power in pointing to the truth than in anything else. We need to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what the gospel is. We need to explain how He works. And as we turn to Jesus, He sets us free from the oppression of demons. He sets us free from the false gods. He sets us free from this oppression of magic and, and demon worship. He he sets us free. He he sets us free from the magic books. He sets us free from all this slavery because we have to to, make that payment all the time in order to get that amulet so that we're we're covered. We're we're covered. We're going to earn our salvation. No, Jesus gives us free salvation. We're free. Paul doesn't have to go around blaspheming Diana. All he has to do is point to Jesus. Now, of course, questions come up. And he has to explain what he means. And in the explanation, part of it comes out that, well, those things which are made with with the hands are not God's. That's true, what Demetrius said. But it's not because Paul was going around blaspheming their God the way that the crowd was thinking that he was. So, So he says... This is not right worthy. Stop it. And then the next thing he says, there are lawful methods to address your concerns. And here he slaps Demetrius and the craftsmen on the wrist. He says there are courts and proconsuls, and there's a lawful assembly. Which, this is not a lawful assembly. Verses 38 and 39. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring their charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So, there are lawful ways of attaining your ends. There are courts, there are proconsuls, there's a lawful assembly. And then he gives the warning. We are in danger of being called into question. In the Roman world, those who incited riots got the death penalty. That was it. Rome had a jealous eye for for, for mob and crowd control. If there were riots, Rome would do the homework and figure out who was responsible. And so there is a a, a backhanded threat here against Demetrius and his craftsmen. This is not a lawful assembly. And then he dismisses the crowd, and they go home notice how the story starts with the danger that Demetrius says Paul is creating for his trade and for Diana worship. But God turns the danger on Demetrius and the craftsmen because they were instigators of riot. And they were facing the threat of a capital crime. So what does all this mean for us? How do we apply this? Well, first it means that the gospel affects economics. When when the gospel takes root, some things are affected in our world, in reality. We cannot hide the fact that we're Christians. Don't put your light under a bushel. Don't put it under the bed. It goes on the hill. We cannot hide the fact that we believe Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. And if we believe that, what we do with our money will be affected. Some things just got to go. And when the gospel starts gaining ground, you will hear from those who are like Demetrius in our culture. Driven by selfish ambition, they will start inciting riots and calling names. What sorts of trades do we have that are dependent on idolatry? There are are trades in our culture that they're dependent on false worship. The, The vanity fair. You go to the mall and you just look at how much money is spent on fashion. And a certain kind of fashion. And it's not to give God the glory. It's immodest. You must have this because you deserve this. Many music bands and television stations are clearly anti-God and anti-Christ. And if the gospel takes root in society, they won't be able to pay their bills. Pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry in America. Illegal and recreational drug use. Jesus is not cool with that. And as the gospel goes out and takes root those industries will be affected. But we think, well, okay, uh, granted, but, you know, we're not rioting in the streets for two hours, yelling, you know, like, great is Diana. We all know that there's no such thing as a Diana. I mean, that's that's common knowledge, right? Well, yes, we know that Diana or Artemis isn't God, but we have sacred cows in our culture. And when you start going there, you have to watch out for the rioters who are for our Dianas and our Artemises. Go out in public and say something against Islam. Draw a cartoon about Muhammad and see how fast it it, it comes. People will riot. Poke your eye in the, the sacred cow of sexual freedom in our culture. Start attacking feminism start attacking abortion or biblical sexuality homosexuality Start, start start defining marriage according to the bible and see how quickly they come out of the woodworks to start calling you names big government is a, is a sacred cow in our culture try and, and, and take away money for public education welfare Medicare, Medicaid, now those are, those are sovereign rights. Secularism and evolution and science are given. Go into the professional science world and say something about God the Creator. And you're going to get some funny looks and some angry eyes. So, the gospel affects economics because there are sacred cows in our culture. People will get angry, but we don't need to fear. God delivered Paul out of this riot's hands. And if we look now at Artemis' temple in Ephesus, I mean, I told you earlier how glorious and how wonderful it was, it was amazing one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 127 pillars, six feet in diameter those pillars were, 60 feet high. Gilded and glorious, what's left of Diana's temple today? The very site in which it is supposed to have been is in question. We don't even know for sure if the site that we think it is is the right place. If you go there, all they have there today is kind of a bunch of stones that are all falling over. And they, they found only enough pillar stones to kind of mismatch them and pile them on top of each other to make one half-hearted, misshapen pillar. It's just a pile of rocks. That's all that's left. And they're not even sure that it's in the right place. The gospel affects economics, but it's political. That is a sea change. To go from, to go from a world in which it's a given that great is Diana of the Ephesians. Every man knows that the image of Diana fell down from heaven. We don't know that anymore. Nobody knows that. We don't even know what you're talking gospel is political Psalm 2 says why do the nations rage God has seated his son and given him all authority in heaven and earth but the gospel is not political the way our culture has made politics a God politics is not God, Jesus is Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth that's a political statement But politics are not God. Politics must fall under God's hand, be under his control, under his way, because there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. So Paul's politics are organic. He clearly states in Titus and Timothy and Romans that the church is to live in submission to the ordained authorities God has placed. We're not to riot in the streets. In fact, it should be laughable if somebody were to accuse us of rioting in the streets. Uh, Modern-day American Christians have mixed-up ideas about politics. They're all about signing petitions or mail bombing our legislators, or you know. But those things are such limited value. I mean, okay, there's nothing wrong with them in and of themselves. But their values is just... It's not a threat. and, And most it makes us annoying to our government. To our leaders. It makes us a thorn in their side. Notice how Paul's connection was with the Ephesian authorities. With the Asiarchs. They were friends. He wasn't antagonistic. He wasn't distant from them. We should be all about creating community about sharing the gospel and showing others how to live it in such a way that it is it's attractive people we learn to love jesus in our lives it's beautiful and god draws people to himself through that it results in wisdom and grace And it does result in evident and unavoidable political sea change. I mean, in the end, the sacred cows have to go. False gods will not stand. God sits in in the heavens and laughs. This political change, not because we've created a new Christian political party, but because we've pointed to Jesus as Lord over heaven and earth and then decided to live according to that truth. When the gospel goes out, it bears its inevitable fruit, and the holiness of repentance starts to take root. It's visible when people are burning 50,000 silver pieces worth of magic books in in the town center. That's, That's visible. And the world can't fight it because it doesn't understand it. It doesn't make sense to them. In the end, they shut their eyes and shout at the top of their lungs and look just like the fools that they are. And then God will send a wise clerk to wield the sword because it is not wielded in vain. As Paul tells us in Romans, and God tells us in Psalms 2, God sits in the heavens and laughs, And all this points to the antithesis between Christ and the world. In the world, we have idol worship. We have a mob, we have chaos, we have anger, and we have confusion, and ultimately we have death. It's a fleshly reaction driven by fear, greed, and religious fervor. But in Christ, we have the gospel. We have freedom, we have life, and we have peace. And that's what we see in Ephesus, and that's what God is doing in the world.
0: Jesus and the, and the
1: Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. In our text today, we saw Paul encounter great tribulation and persecution. And in our Old Testament reading, Elijah was pursued with the intent of destruction by Jezebel. And the psalm we opened with, psalm 3, David was being pursued by Absalom, his own son, when he wrote it. The story of God's word is dramatic. God's people encounter various and grievous trials in our world. Our enemies are strong, and sometimes they seem overwhelming. Yet in all this, God constantly draws us back to himself. He teaches us faith, hope, and love and humility. In humbling himself, Jesus was made Lord over all things. David humbly cries out for God's deliverance and speaks out in hope. Paul is saved from the masses by God's provision and his enemies are reprimanded. And God speaks to Elijah with a still, small voice on the mountain. God always comes to his people with life in his hand. He vindicates their cause and crushes their enemies. He speaks to us words of peace and words of life. And that is what this meal is for us. God tells us he loves us, he died for us, and he gives us his life. That we may overcome our enemies and his in humble service by faith.
0: Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWingle through our website, christkirkmi.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.